Welcome to the Future of Protein Production Podcast. In this series, we will explore the technological advancements that are shaping alternative proteins. From cultured meats to plant-based proteins, we will talk to experts and innovators who are working towards a more sustainable, efficient, and kind protein production system. Join us as we dive into the exciting possibilities and challenges of the alternative protein production industry in the years to come. Okay, and welcome to the future of protein production. Today, I'm delighted to be speaking with Ira van Elen, who wears many hats. She is a board member of Cellular Agriculture Netherlands, co-founder of Respect Farms, co-founder and CEO of Kind Earth Tech, and also an advisory board member of Just. And we'll find out a little bit more about her roles at each of these organizations over the next 30 or so minutes. So Ira, welcome. It's lovely to have you with us. Well, thanks for the invitation, Nick. Very nice to be here. There's never a dull moment in the field of alternative proteins, and especially for cell ag. These past few months have thrown up some major milestones for cultivated meats, especially. Um, what's it been like watching these regulatory hurdles fall over in the U USA? Upside and good meat receiving their FDA no questions letters, uh, and then the subsequent two USDA approvals for labeling and site inspection, clearing those products for sale. Wow, that's a long question with a lot of words in it, and that's exactly <laughs> what it has been like to my surprise, because I, of course, stem from the era where cultivated meat was just a technical hurdle to be taken. And then finding out later in life when uh, the reasons for cultivated meat are so obvious uh, to succeed and to be there and to be an actual alternative or uh, addition to proteins, then that there's this legal hurdle. Uh, so. When I got back into the space, that was sort of annoying to me, like, hey, aren't we just happy that this is now possible? Aren't we embracing this? Uh, are we helping these companies uh, uh, yeah, help the world uh, to become a better place? But no, of course not. Uh, there were these legal hurdles, and there still are many legal hurdles. And um, I love the idea that people want it to be safe. And I think uh, it being safe and having, so not seeing this as hurdles, but seeing this as opportunities, I think is is important. People want to know what they eat. People want to be sure that uh, people looked at it. But for me, being so long in the space, I've always known this, this would be safe and this would be not a real problem. But in hindsight, I must admit that I'm very happy that uh, now USDA and the FDA came together to how to proceed on this one that companies like ups, uh, Upside and, and, and Good Meat have diligently done their homework and, and went with it. And I think that will also be the case in Europe, uh, even though that is not happening yet, but it will happen, of course. I think the, the UK is gearing up for it. And Singapore, of course, took the lead. And, um, and I think it is very important that we now understand that what happened in Singapore was not just a one-off and not just something that, oh, something happened in Singapore but nowhere else in the world. So yes, what happened in the US is extremely important and, and, and I am over the moon that it is so obvious that it's happening now and not in four, five, six years of struggles. And I think a lot of people are surprised that it actually already happened um, about uh, 
with a product that's not even on the market yet, a product that can't be produced in at scale yet. And um, how surprised people were that this actually was approved. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, it struck me because that also means that a lot of people had doubts that this would happen. And I didn't. Uh, I had no doubts that uh, approval would happen in the end because it is very hard to find anything wrong with cultivated meat because it's such an obvious, uh, uh, safe, totally transparent uh, way of producing the same stuff that we're used to. So why would it ever be a problem? And um, But yeah, I'm, I'm very, very happy that it happened. And, and um, every time something like this happens... Um, Early in my mornings, usually, I get a phone call from someone who's also over the moon. And then we sort of applaud each other. And then we do ask the question, yeah, what would the old guy have thought about it? And I think most people want to know that. What would my father have thought about it? And I think he said, well, that's about time. That's probably what Well, you've, uh, that's one of my ideas coming up, one of my questions coming up. I mean, these are just two products from two companies, so there's a lot more. Um, to follow, I'm sure, um, in that um, approvals process. Now, as you mentioned there, your father's contributions to the field of salag have played a crucial role um, in the development of cultured meat, and his ideas continue to inspire and guide researchers and entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs in this emerging field. I love the way that his work is always acknowledged uh, at Just. Um, talking about your father, what sort of a man was he, Ira, if you don't mind me asking? Um, well, he was my dad. And he, I used to talk about my father in like, yeah, he was my dad, but because my mom died quite early, uh, when I was about 11, it was very much me and my dad that, uh, in the world. And he may not have been the most ideal picture book dad that took me to the doctor or whatever like you just did, but, um, I always said it was that I felt felt very rich as a person to have been around such an inspiring person because he was inspiring. He had he had ideas on a daily basis, not only around cultivated meat. He was a sort of constant visionary ideas and, and many of his ideas he didn't work on himself, what happened years and years later. Um, so he was a fun person to be around. Uh, even though I could never have worked with my father, we would have struggled. We would have butted heads. So maybe it's 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 good that he did it as long as he did, and that I took over when I did. Yeah, I mean he was a visionary in more ways than one. I mean he was concerned about how the world would feed itself um, with a rising population long before anyone else probably had given it a thought. But um, especially meat, <laughs> how we would feed ourselves with meat. Yes, um, he was very well aware that, um, so he started working on this because the idea stems from uh, around, I think, 1948. A couple of years after the, uh, the war, he went to a university. Um, he saw uh, a piece of tissue being kept alive in a tank. It was quite fashionable at the time. Um, for medical research, and um, he found himself thinking about that uh, piece of tissue as food, 
whereas everyone else in the room saw it as something that was medically interesting. And he understood very well about himself, and, and this is really how he explained it to me, that his, uh, his years as a prisoner of war in the Japanese war camps, or prisoner of war camps, had made him a person that was completely focused on, can I eat this? The way for them to survive in the camps was to question everything they found, everything they saw, can I eat this? So whereas his fellow student looked at that piece of tissue like, oh, can we make a, a, a skin graft out of that? Or can we in the future maybe make organs? My father thought, hey, I can cook that and eat it. And he was very well aware that that was a strange reaction to this uh, compared to his fellow students. And he really looked into it at the time and found there was no technique possible that would make it uh, something, uh, and there was no need for it. Meat consumption at the time wasn't as big as it was in 1948. We wanted to eat meat, but we were just starting that. But in the 1980s, my father was appalled about the amount of antibiotics used in uh, uh, intensive agriculture or animal agriculture. He was appalled about how we um, kept animals. And um, he was very well aware that China was becoming, uh, um, and, and, and Southeast Asia was becoming a place where people were going to eat meat more than they did at the time. And I remember being in a room with friends of my father and doing the mass on a piece of paper, a napkin and, uh, and a coaster. And then near the end of the evening, we decided, or they decided, or all of us decided, I was one of those teenagers that just hang, hang around. And we decided, yeah, um, we will probably need four planets if, we, if all of that Southeast Asia and, and China is going to eat as much meat as we do. Not possible. So what are we going to do? And then he, he stumbled on um, relevant uh, research in stem cells. Uh, and stem cells, like cell ther therapy and trying to create uh, organs. And then he said, we need to make meat out of this. That's a way bigger challenge and a way more important challenge. And for him, it was to eradicate uh, um, anything in, 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 in the use of antibiotics, the misuse of animals, and to provide and high-end protein to a huge amount of people all over the world and, and, and a growing population wanting to eat that. Because let's not forget meat is a high-end protein and people do very well on it. And it's not healthy when we eat too much of it, but it's also not unhealthy to eat some of it. And, in, and, and for children and elderly people, it's still under debate whether we should or not. And it's not up to me to decide that. But yeah, that's that's how he sort of thought this is a smarter way of doing something that we love to eat. Uh -huh. So when did this work? Always an evolution, not a revolution. A sort of logical next steering away from animals to cells. Mm -hmm. So when did his work start in earnest, Ira? I mean, we were talking about the early 80s or was it later than that? <laughs> 
I'm sorry, I have to cough, Nick. Can we? <laughs> can you mix it up, uh, or can you cut this? We might be able to take a little bit out. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> then let me have a cough because I talk too much. Okay. He started from one day to the next. He just had a phone book, and he went into his car and he started visiting people at universities who worked with stem cells and stem cell research and, um, and, and tissue engineers. And those people all worked in the medical field. And it was very, he had a good time talking to them, but it was impossible to convince them um, that this was a way to go. People were actually afraid of my father coming by and maybe ruining their careers if they would say out loud that his idea was a good idea. So people talked to him, enlightened him, educated him, and 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 were in 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 good contact because he was a charming man. But they wouldn't say out loud how many times he was called like, "Okay, Mister Van Ende, we had a really nice conversation, but please don't mention my name." <laughs> um, now, cultivated meat has its skeptics today, but in the nineteen eighties and nineteen nineties, I, I would have imagined it was. Uh... Even more so. Yeah, that wasn't even skepticism. It was just like, uh, what's this guy talking about? He's crazy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mind you, at the time, we didn't have a sustainability notion at all. So that that the rest of the world wanted to eat meat. Right now is a topic you can talk about with everyone. Everybody has read something about it in a newspaper. But the eating of meat and, and, and the use of antibiotics and climate change, sustainability, even plastics, it wasn't an issue. An issue at the time was ban the bomb, uh, 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 getting the wall down, stuff like that. Um, nobody had a notion about food being important. Uh, we were still gearing up eating more meat and more stuff at the time but sustainability was a word nobody used climate change maybe in some academics it was a notion and people knew about it it's not that it was a secret some but nobody it wasn't a topic in the media so going to people and telling them let's make steaks out of cells sounded ridiculous to people and my father have, has been mocked many times. If if there's one thing I'm extremely sensitive towards is being mocked myself because I've seen my father being mocked so many times with his wild ideas. He was he was perceived as a very charming but crazy guy. Mm -hmm. And then luckily uh, he kept on going. And then in 1993, he got some people together and they wrote the first proof of concept. So that was actually a piece of paper that said, this guy is not crazy. This guy is actually walking around with an idea that could actually work. And because of that was written in 1993, in 1994, uh, he found someone, uh, an academic that he paid her. She was willing to write down his patents. And the reason he wrote those patents was 
because he knew that if he wanted people to work on it, he needed research money. And research money only comes when you have a business proposal. So he knew I have to write these patents. So he put his idea into patents. With those patents, then suddenly, oh, there are patents. Now we have to take this guy serious. And there's also this written proof of concept. And then slowly things started to move. And then we're talking about 1995, 1996. So the first patents uh, were, they started writing them in 1994. They came about in 1997. And the last ones uh, came about in 1999. And then with those patents, suddenly uh, the machinery of uh, getting grants in the Netherlands came to him and said, oh, well, maybe uh, there's this new grant system and if you put it together with a company and some universities, then you could apply for a grant. So then I found my father trying to get a grant and putting together a, a, a consortium. And people in this whole story have been so important. And, and one of them was uh, a guy who was a CEO of a meat company. Uh, a daughter company from Sara Lee in the Netherlands. And my father just, yeah, he didn't even make, uh, make uh, a proper uh, appointment. He went up there and he just said, I want to talk to the CEO here. And the CEO was kind enough to invite this elderly gentleman because my father was already uh, quite old when he was working on this. And what was magic, this guy was a food technologist and the CEO of a meat company. And the day before, his wife had taken him into the lab because she was uh, uh, working uh, as a lab technician in a, bio a biology lab. And the night before, by chance, he had seen some cells growing in the lab. And then, mind you, the next day, this strange gentleman with a story about growing meat from cells ends up in his office, and this guy, Peter Verstaten, who was one of the uh, founders of Mosameet, opened the door for my father and took my father seriously. Uh -huh. oh, I did not know that. That was Peter. Oh, that's fascinating. That's Peter. Yeah. So we have a, a lot of, I, I, I have the good fortune to know a lot of heroes in my life. Uh -huh. And of course, it starts with my dad. But for me, Peter Verstaten, and later, of course, uh, Henk Haagsman, and of course also uh, Joost Exera de Matos and Mark Post. All of those people, you you know this famous little film where you see this weird guy dancing around, but it only becomes a movement when people start dancing with him. Yeah. And and the leaps of faith, people like Peter and the other names I mentioned have taken and taken this idea. Because it was just an idea. There was no proof. It was just an idea. Uh, further, that's the real, real beauty of it all. Otherwise, it would have just been an idea of, yeah, okay. So, um, I mean, does that else? question at all? Uh, no, it definitely does. Definitely does. I mean, of, of, of the other work that you remember at the time, I mean, I guess guessing trying to get people to back him financially must have been challenging as well i mean once you've got the patents and as you say the proof of concept and then he starts getting some of these influential people on board academics um 
it was it was that was painstaking and i think he put all of his private money into it um so there was nothing left when we had to bury him and um here and there he managed to get some funding and um i think he sometimes lied to get some funding because he said we will be able to make this in two years or we will maybe make this in five years um and of course I, I'm not even sure whether he knew he couldn't, because he was very optimistic. Um, but yes, it was a constant, uh, and it also meant that he did everything on his own. Yeah. He didn't have a team of people working with him. I mean, bearing in mind it was 2020 before it was eventually regulated in Singapore, and it's 2023 before we've got two products regulated in America. Do you, do you honestly think he, it would have happened? Do you think he th would have thought it would happen? Did, he, did yes. you think sometimes he might oh, have yes. thought it of giving up, perhaps? No. Giving up wasn't... No. Not an option. No, 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 no. He had already eaten it. He had seen it. It was... it it And his hurry, and, and sometimes um, maybe not being charming to people, was that he wanted to also live it himself. And that's the sad part of it. He never yeah. got to eat cultivated meat. But he, he was sure that this would happen and giving up was never an option he worked on it until he was 90 and then he got sick sadly and then he died well i think it's important to stress that none of what we would be seeing today in the world of cultivated meat would be happening were it not for your father's work and we love the way that it's become a family affair and that you've picked up the man so when you are now um, the champion that he was so ira could we move on to you could you please tell us about your own individual journey into the field of food tech well the field of food tech um it it first was an email from josh tetrick they had bought uh these patents uh from john vane and they were just curious who was this guy that wrote these patents um and i got an email from josh about it and then the funny thing happened when we finally met because at first I wasn't very interested in talking to Josh. Um, but when I got him on the phone, he started explaining what cultivated meat was to me. And that was sort of like a, wait a minute. <laughs> uh, that's weird. Uh, I'm, and I didn't know Josh at the time. So telling him to stop talking to me and uh, telling him, hey, I will explain cultivated meat to you. What are you doing here? Uh, <laughs> uh, but we became friends and... Josh was actually the one that made me aware of the fact that uh, as a bystander, which witnessing my father's work for so long and doing a couple of things at the time had made me an expert on cultivated meat all by itself. I didn't know that. I, I had a very different uh, uh, career. I was in automation and... Um, Josh said, you have to, with all of this knowledge and all of the thinking that you've done, because around cultivating meat, there's a lot of thinking to be done. And that is in the value chain and who is going to be part of this and what kind of meats will we have in the future? What kind of nomenclature will we use uh, in the future? And I've been in the weird situation that I've been thinking, talking, uh, discussing this for more than 40 years. So um, when someone comes, brings me an idea, it's very seldom new to me. 
And then I can lead them to, hey, have you looked into this? Or have you talked to that person? And um, so, yeah, just told me, you have to use your voice or at least do something with it. Come to the States and be uh, an advocate for cultivated meat or go after funding. I am like my father. I'm horrible at going after funding. I'm really bad at it and I hate it. I also am very European. So um, I come came up with a different solution and that is staying in the Netherlands, being aware that the Netherlands is actually one of the largest meat producers in the world and one of the biggest exporters of uh, animal tech. So animal ag tech in the world. The Netherlands exports uh, intensive uh, animal agriculture on a daily basis. It's it's a very, very important industry. So if I want to make an impact, if I want to change something, I think I need to do it here. I think I need to do it in Europe. And with people like Uma and people like Josh in the States and, 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 the, and the heavy guys in the Bay Area, I don't think they need me. Um, so I, t- I started the painstaking word work here in the Netherlands of finding out why we weren't putting enough focus on cellular agriculture in the Netherlands and in Europe. And that is not because there is a huge, gigantic anti-lobby. It's just usually ignorance. It's usually not knowing, not knowing where to place it or what the benefits are. And, And is that something that you can say politicians are should have known they have so many problems on their plates so when i first started talking to politicians i was angry because i wanted them to do this and that i wanted so much from them and then luckily enough i found out hey i'm i better start helping them and 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 being angry doesn't get me anywhere so i started sort of educating people in parliament educating people in the ministry uh, working together and also learning what were their problems? How can I help them solve what they need from me? Yeah. And then you are in a, in a collaboration, and then you come up with great solutions for problems that they have, and things that can us can, can bring us further in creating an ecosystem around cultivated meat. So you're you're with um, just your role is uh, advisory board member. Yeah, with that that's an honorary role, Nick. Honorary world. Okay. Um, I. That's it's a very well-oiled machine, Good Need, and I'm in awe of what they do. I love their marketing. I love the way Josh talks about it. Uh, I love the people that work there. I've been there many times. Um, and what is very special about Good Meat, and it's the only company in the whole field that was already making food and was bold enough to make the change from just being a vegan company to also doing cultivated meat. And that makes them, for me, still very special. They know what it means to sell food. Yeah. They know what it means to cater to a, a, to people and to a palate, and, to, and they're very good at making very tasty food. I'm, yeah. I'm not sure whether you've ever tasted their just egg, and, and, and the notion that it is more complicated to make a mung bee act as if it's an egg than making animal cells act as if it's meat. That's more logical. And they were bold enough to, to with their 
following almost because they had a, a, a really amazing name already in the vegan community to say, okay, we're also going into cultivated meat. Um, yeah, I, 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 I applaud them how they did it, how they do it. So for me, being a sort of honorary advisory is the best I can call myself. And, and yes, I'm in contact with them and, um, I, I, yeah, we, we have great conversations about this. Where can it go? What should we do? Uh, what have we learned? Uh, what aren't we, what shouldn't we forget? Yeah. That's, I think it's nice. That's what it's like, Nick. I think it's nice that the Van Elen legacy is sort of front and center. And, you know, within a few days of them receiving that uh, final hurdle with the USDA, there's a nice article there online about, you know, where it's come from. I think that's a really nice touch. Um, now, in answer to your question before, uh, I have not tried their Just Egg product and I have not had a cultivated meat product yet. And I can't wait. Um, so you have no doubt tasted it many, many, many times. Um, can you just, when did you first taste it? And what were your impressions and, and how... Over the years of tasting it, has the product evolved for you in terms of taste and texture and you know, mimicking the real thing, I guess? Well, I was first invited to come taste cultivated meat in 19 uh, or 2017. And I remember being extremely annoyed about it um, because I didn't know Josh yet. I didn't know the company yet. I was just invited to come over and taste. And so what I did and uh, was get in contact with the Ministry of Agriculture, asked uh, some people I still remember the names of, hey guys, what happened? Why on earth do I have to fly all the way to San Francisco to taste cultivated meat? Weren't we doing that in Maastricht? Shouldn't I go to just uh, have a train trip to Maastricht and eat it there? What happened? Well, they explained what happened and I understood it. And then uh, I, I sort of remember sitting in the plane and looking outside and sort of like, wow, dad, thanks for giving me this trip to San Francisco to meet uh, uh, the company and eat some meat. And then there were all these photographers and, and, and people listening in on me munching on some food, which was very nicely plated. And I took a bite and uh, pictures, click, click, click. And then I sort of like, okay, what am I eating? Yeah, and it was a duck mousse, and it was a chorizo uh, a piece, and it was uh, a bolognese sauce that I was eating together with Josh, because I hated eating alone. So I said, okay, Joyce, you come join me in this plate, because mind you, you're standing there, and everybody, and you're eating alone. It's horrible. Yeah. And then, and then the most dreadful thing is that people start asking you, what does this taste like? And I'm sort of like, yeah, what do you think it tastes like? It tastes like meat. <laughs> Because so it's very boring. It's 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 not something else, and it doesn't have the aftertaste of soy. It doesn't have the after the sweetness of some of the other uh, plant-based products that try to mimic meat, which is an amazing achievement, mind you. That's an amazing achievement. But this is just not. This is not mimicking meat. This is meat. It is meat. Uh, because a cell won't grow if you don't give it what it wants to eat. And uh, only if you balance that out very neatly, will it sort of divide as many times as you want it. So if you try to over uh, 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 stimulate cells with too much food, they don't like that. Too little, they don't like that. It's very balanced. And why is that? Because those cells aren't in an animal. 
So they don't have a kidney system or they don't have a liver system to do away with too much food or too little food. Um, so you have to be very meticulous in feeding cells in the right way, giving them the right n nutrition so that they feel comfortable enough to grow in enough density for us to make meat out of it. So in terms of the products that you've tasted, is it, is it just products from good meat or have you tasted other other types? No, I've also tasted other stuff. I've tasted shrimp. Uh, I've tasted a lobster soup. Uh, so yeah, I've tasted uh, uh, various products by now. And, it, and in all cases, it tastes just like the real thing because it is the real thing. No, not in all cases. The, the lobster soup was one of the most mind-boggling things I've had. Because um, that was really sort of uh, going back to a memory I had from a young child when I still ate uh, lobster soup. That was amazing. I've also had shrimp, but that was breaded too much. Right. So the breading was more uh, prevalent. And of course, shrimp is such a delicate taste. Uh, so And um, that was not as obvious for me that that is shrimp than it was with the lobster or with the duck or with the the, the chicken. Mm -hmm. okay, and there's a famous picture of you. Um, was it with your son, I think, in Singapore? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And you were tasting it out there for the first time. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that was, also got the picture. The is, that was not the first time because, but some say what I tasted for the first time was charred chicken. Right. And... And that was, that was for me a sort of homecoming moment. Like, okay, I've been advocating that it is very different when you put a, an animal cell on the barbecue or a plant-based cell on the barbecue. The one becomes dry and bitter if you don't cook it properly. And the other one explodes, gives a, off a lot of umami, a lot of car caramelization happens. It's extremely difficult, uh, different, but it's something I talked about. I, 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 I tried to convince people that will happen, and, and that was the logical thing to explain, because from science, you could take that away. But of course, I had never personally had that in my mouth. And then suddenly, they gave me something very familiar, and that was a small satay. And that satay was slightly charred, exactly how it was supposed to be. And it was also very symbolic because my father was born in Indonesia and that is, and where I was at the time was very close to where my father was born. And that I was going to get this satay, I didn't know that. So that was the real surprise. So before I had a nugget, okay, that's a nugget. And then the, ne the next course came and they gave me this small charred, completely recognizable Indonesian satay uh, uh, skewers with the perfect peanut sauce, but the skewer was not under the peanut sauce. It was on the side. And I, I really, I, I took it and it comes close to your nose and all the aroma came out. All the caramelization was in there. And charring is, is sort of the proof of this is, this is meat. Mm -hmm. This is chicken. This is chicken meat. And, and for me, that was really uh, uh, sort of, uh, and my, my inner reaction was, 
I've not been lying. I've been telling the truth. It's true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the, there are massive challenges ahead still. I mean, we mustn't forget that these milestones, they're huge. They're huge, potentially um, transformational for the entire food sector. Um, but it's just the start. Um, there are huge challenges left in terms of scaling, um, in terms of consumer acceptance, I guess, um, and still regulations because every company has to put through every individual product and it has to go through the process. And I think the good meat process might have taken 13 months or something like that. I know the upside process took 13 months. So if we can talk about each three of those elements, the scaling, um, I think I, someone told me the other day that if we took... 100% of the bioreactor capacity that is devoted to pharmaceuticals and switched it all to cultivated meats, there wouldn't be enough um, capacity to feed the USA for half a day. I don't know if that's true or not, but it's a great fact. Um, but <laughs> scaling capacity, it's such a huge challenge. I mean, how do you think um, that we can solve that issue? We can solve that issue if we put the bright minds currently at work at creating faster, uh, more intelligent slaughterhouses or faster, uh, more uh, 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 animal factory machinery. If we get those bright minds to work on the engineering for cultivated meat, mind you, everything we can do currently, we have done with machinery that has not been designed for cultivated meat at all. That doesn't exist. So we have to go to the, we really have to sort of see this as a starting point. And I get really annoyed by uh, bioreactor companies trying to sell cultivated meat uh, machinery to me with the full knowledge that that was not designed for cultivated meat, with the full knowledge that that will give shear stress, that that will give problems. Um, and it, it has to do with focus and a willingness to put focus on the fact that we as humans can steer away from a dreadful way of going about our food from animals. Yeah. For me, it is all about focus. And and I, I know we can. So I'm an optimist here, Nick. I'm, I really am. Because I've seen when, for instance, the government or, or Europe has said, the culling of hand, uh, of uh, 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 male chicks is not okay anymore. So come up with a solution. Before, nobody worked on it. Then the government said, it's not okay anymore. Within two years, on every big ag tech uh, uh, event where I go, you can buy those things. So governments also have a, a real big influence here and so the public has a big influence here it's not just the consumer but public awareness about animal cruelty about uh, uh, societal uh, impact of um, uh, eating too much meat or uh, um, or using too much antibiotics in the environment all of those things so it's it's still also an awareness where do we want to go but I am convinced that if we put focus on this and and understand that we need to go back to the drawing table and design specifically for cultivated meat, whether it's a high-end product or a commodity product, 
whether it's something that grows on a farm or whether it's going to grow in a factory. For me, both fine, but we need to start designing stuff for it. Yeah. And that will take focus and it will take money. Yeah. But it's probably and not enough. The question, coming. of course, is consumer acceptance. I've never really been worried about consumer acceptance um, because if you eat it and if you get to taste it and if you uh, get it on your plate and we stop uh, portraying it as something from a Petri dish but can portray it as something that's on your plate, then it's 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 so obvious the better product. So yeah, It does annoy me when I see that. It does annoy me when I see the pictures of the Petri dishes um, and we're talking about cultivated meat. I'd much rather see the finished product, the stunning yeah, exactly. product that you ate a few weeks ago. Um, yeah. yeah, and then regulations, um, you know, it did. We're cracking some of these hurdles, um, but it is still only two countries, Singapore and the USA. Um, are you afraid? I mean, you're you're in the Netherlands. Are you afraid that the Europe is being left behind in all of this? I know, as far as I'm aware, there's no company has actually submitted a dossier for cultivated meat in Europe. So it's not like they're sitting. It's not like they're sitting on hundreds of dossiers and they're just not clearing it. Nobody's applied for it yet. Um, I, think but, I, I think they're really eagerly waiting for this dossier to come in. Mm. Um, but it is a sort of chicken and egg situation in Europe. Uh, I think the law is perfect. There's nothing wrong with the law. It is how you interpret it and go about it. And um, of course, in the beginning, I was very sort of anti-EFSA or why is this EFSA being so difficult? And then you learn more and then EFSA is not being difficult. EFSA is just being scared that they were, are going to be held responsible for making mm -hmm. a mis mistake. Um, so I think the European Union, and hopefully uh, the Netherlands can play a role there, can help EFSA do the job that we as a public have asked them to do, and that is assess whether something is safe. Uh, that it can be assessed as safe, no doubt. Um, keeping that dossier in a pipeline, not 18 months as it is regulated, but maybe for three or four years, that's the real fear. So if I'm now a startup company, mind you, these are not big companies. These are all startups and they have a little bit of funding. And that funding goes into, I hope, a lot of good research and a, a good assessments. And then sending in your dossier and going after new funding and your funding or your dossier is stuck in the pipeline. You don't know why, uh, no one has to tell you because they can stop the clock. That means that those people, yeah, if I'm an investor in a company that has a dossier in the pipeline, I'm gonna wait until uh, it's out of the pipeline. Yeah, 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 you're right. They stop the clock, don't they? If there's any mistakes in there, they'll make you go back to the start and then that's another 18 months potentially to get back to where you were, so. Um, and I know that the process in Europe is very stringent and it's stringent for a reason, obviously, for the products to be safe. Um, and, and, and in some ways, the, the way it is stringent actually helps you present the right dossier in the first place. Yeah, but then the way they went about the dossiers was difficult. And um, because they, 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 there's not a cellular agriculture uh, uh, society that can actually assess this yet. This is a new industry. Uh, the people that could assess it 
are usually in the startups. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have 150 startups all over the world. There, So let's say there are a thousand people all over the world that could assess this. All of them are not working at EFSA. So the people at EFSA are people coming from the, 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 the uh, how do you call pharma or medical field. But that's not food. That's, that's a different way of assessing something. So I wish, I wish we as, I don't know, citizens of countries would say, okay, yes, we're very happy EFSA that you exist. How can we help you to assess this in the best and, 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 and the fastest way possible? Because on the one hand, I want to be safe with the food that I eat. But on the other hand, I want to be safe and not have a climate uh, uh, that is, for instance, in the Netherlands, making sure that I probably will have to live behind dikes for the rest of my life, or maybe the Netherlands completely disappears. So what kind of safety are we actually working on? So yes, my food needs to be safe, but don't make it difficult for startups to save the world. I mean, here in the UK, we're, we're in a quite a unique position in that, yeah. um, well, technically, we're not bound by those um, Brussels shackles um, anymore, and we can forge ahead and potentially come the new become the new Singapore. I mean, are, are you sad by some of the companies in Europe that have to sort of go elsewhere to try and get their products to to market? And you uh, talked about most of meat before. No, I'm 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 not sad about it. I'm very happy that they can, and I know that, for instance, Meatwool and Mosameat. They're formidable cultivated meat companies, and they're going to show the world a beautiful cultivated meat and also new species. We're talking about pork and we're talking about beef. That's not yet even possible in, in the U.S. because they also need to go there. And cultivated meat will not be made in the Netherlands and then exported to Singapore so that we have a facility in Singapore in the middle of uh, an area where 65% of the growth in, cultiv- in meat eating is going to be expected. I applaud them. I'm very happy that they do that. I, I applaud the fact that they are bold enough to go there and make sure that their uh, products are uh, approved there. And now we can also go to the States and be approved there. And therefore, about, for instance, uh, why it's so great that the US, US has now said, come on over, it's great to have this product. If you are a cultivated meat company in the UK and you get the regulatory people to go a little bit faster than Europe, then yeah, you can actually start uh, uh, exporting your meat or whatever you're trying to make in a cultivated meat way to the US. So for the UK right now, there's a huge market opening up. Yeah. There's a surprising amount of um, companies here as well. Yeah, I know. And and there's... There's good science and um, good initiatives. So I hated Brexit, but if this comes from it, <laughs> who knows? Maybe something it's a good idea after all. Something good's got to come of it. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, before we come on to um, some of your other roles, um, obviously your role with Cellular Agriculture Netherlands um, is quite topical. Um, given the, I think it was a 16 million euro investment by the Dutch government last year. And then more recently, we've had the Dutch government say that there can be um, tastings 
tastings yeah. of cultivated meat projects. So um, do you want to talk about that first major milestone? Because far, as far as I'm aware, that's one of the biggest investments by a government um, globally. Uh, and what yeah. was your involvement in that um, through Cellular Agriculture Netherlands? Well, um, a group of us, uh, uh, so Mozambique, Meatable, uh, the Vegan Cowboys, uh, um, uh, Planet Bio. So a group of uh, specialists, saw the opportunity in the National Growth Fund uh, funding uh, to come up with a, a plan to build an ecosystem in the uh, in the Netherlands uh, and also help the Netherlands come back into the forefront. And it took us about uh, one and a half year to do it. And, and first you send in uh, a sort of uh, a two-pager and then we got through. Oh my God, we uh, a 10-pager. Oh, we got through again, and then we really heavily had to invest in uh, a seventy pager, and we got through again, and then yeah, and it was so so very um, scary for me because of course my father was involved in the first ever granting from any government in the world, and he got two point two million to re do research. And I was really scared that, okay, now I'm in a group trying to get a grant and I'm not going to get it. It would have been very shameful for me personally. So I was personally very nervous if we would get it or not. We asked for 285 million and we still think we will need that. Um, and I still remember that we got the 60 million, the biggest ever grant from a government for cellular agriculture. And my first reaction was, oh, shit, because I knew it was not going to be enough. But the group in itself is so strong. And we've learned so much from each other, also universities working together. So this group of, uh, um, let's say, experts, each in their own field, working together for one and a half year, and then even another year uh, again, that in itself is is maybe even worth more than the 60 million, but we do allocate that 60 million towards scale up, towards uh, education, and uh, uh, towards uh, research. And it's divided over two sets of completely different uh, techniques. One is precision fermentation, the other is cultivated meat. So we all know that it's not enough, but on the other hand, it's open source. It goes directly into uh, education at universities. It's not behind closed doors of startups. And what I hope is that tomorrow the UK does a bigger uh, uh, investment like this uh, in another grant and that Europe does more. And of course, a personal project of mine uh, with the farmers was left behind. <coughs> I was pretty sad about it, but within a couple of months, we got another grant and um, we can work on that now. Uh, there are new initiatives because this 60 million is a sort of okay stamp. So the Dutch government sees this as valuable for the Netherlands. And this grant was all about making sure that something that is hard to get money for, but will in the end be profitable for the Netherlands. Uh, those kind of, that's the, the, the whole point of this grant. And if a government actually wants to do that and, and take a, a sort of yeah, leap of faith, then others are following. 
And right now, even companies from Singapore or from India are coming to the Netherlands because this is a place where both in plant-based, as you probably know, and in cultivated meat now, and in precision fermentation, a lot is happening. Yeah. So, yeah, we are really uh, at the forefront again. And um, I am super, super happy and proud to be part of that. And those uh, that announcement, um, what was it, two weeks ago now about the um, tastings, that was also yeah. a significant milestone. Yeah. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that and why it is significant? Um, it is significant because it came about uh, um, from, at first, a place of fear, like Europe is saying, no, you can't do that. But from the very good connections that we made in, in writing the plan for the National Growth Fund, the connections together from Meatable and Mosa Meat and Biotech the Netherlands, and of course the Ministry of Agriculture, uh, and then uh, uh, the Ministry of Health, we created a group of people like, okay, how can we do this? Because everyone started to understand okay, there's now 60 million and we want to do something with cultivated meat, uh, but trying to get the product to market, not being able to taste it, yeah, that's a no-brainer. So there was a willingness, okay, maybe also also because of the investment of the Netherlands into this, this, this growth fund, um, like, okay, now we have to make the best of it. And then at first, out of fear, like, uh, can we do this? And is this important? They came up with an idea that was ridiculous. It, it, it was like almost sending in a dossier into EFSA. But because the the, the, the the trust between the companies and the ministries was, yeah, there, there was a very good trust base. They managed to come up with a system that now makes it possible if you condone yourselves as we want you to condone and you are producing in the Netherlands and you're based in the Netherlands. So, and, and it is a trial for a year. And then if we do good, then the trial gets extended. And then I think within those two years, also the first dossiers need to be sended in because of course it is not that we can just not send in dossiers to uh, EFSA. So it is, it is a sort of, portal towards sending in a dossier for a product A, B, or C. But sending in a product dossier and not having people taste it and not having people react to it and not having people understand what this is about, also on a political level, that would have been ridiculous. So it's also badly needed and everybody got to understand it. Yeah. Well, what is it, um, Ira, about the Dutch, about the Netherlands that makes it the, this epicenter of food tech and ag tech innovation. I mean, you've got some of the best universities and research institutes in the world there. You've got some leading um, companies in cultivated meat. You've got some big companies in things like vertical farming and um, all sorts of ag tech. So, you know, what is it about the Dutch and food? And <laughs> Well, you, I think I think we're an extremely small country. You have the weirdest language in the world. Um, and we know that we need to survive by making products that we have to explore because you can't just do it all in the Netherlands. Besides that, we have ingrained in us the fact that we have to battle uh, a water. So I think, and, and we, we, we are traders. 
We we invite everyone into our country. I, I live in Amsterdam. We have 182 uh, different nationalities living here. That's not because we're the kindest people in the world. No, we do it business with them. Uh, you can integrate in the Netherlands very very easily, but do business with us. Yeah, it's it's not that we're saints here, and yes, we're nice people and we're blonde, but please <laughs> do business with us and bring something to the table. Yeah. Um, that's that's Dutch. So we're frank. We're bad at being surface minded. We're not, um, and we have to battle a lot of water around us, and we have to make our name in the world and. I think that all together makes that we, uh, yeah, are this funny country that make too much meat. We have too much animals and um, we create a lot of problems and we now find out that we have to solve those problems. <laughs> well, I guess with Singapore, they've got that 30 by 30 initiative where they want to yeah. produce 30% of their own stock, uh, own food by 2030. Um you know, we, we, we need to reduce supply chains, don't we? We need to reduce food miles and cultivated meat is a great way to do that. Yeah. I mean, you look at what happened during COVID, supply chains just ground to a halt. Yeah. You know, if we're all relying yeah, on our own food systems. Yeah, but it also showed that right after COVID, we're all flying again, we're all going on vacations again. Um, yeah. So even a pandemic doesn't change us. So um, it is not that we can expect the whole world to go vegan and i don't think that we will do away completely with conventional meat but we need the addition of precision fermentation we need the addition of cultivated meat and hopefully let's say a hundred years from now humanity because will be a better humanity and have decided not to use animals for food anymore but right now, we just have to make our sort of way in into a huge industry uh, and, 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 and make sure that we produce it in a better way than we currently do. Uh -huh. Yeah, I guess the mainstream media, they're all too quick to, um, uh, to sign the um, death certificate, aren't they, for various industries. They've been doing it recently for plant-based foods. Um, yeah. They'll probably do it for cultivated meat soon. Well, I'm not I'm saying it. Plant-based world has been a little bit uh, uh, sort of professing themselves like the whole world is going to be uh, uh, convinced that plant-based is as good as. Um, I think there are amazing products that actually make sure that is true. And there are a lot of products that have an amazing consistency of or fabulous marketing, but they could use some of the, 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 the characteristics of cultivated meat or precision fermentation. So what I would hope is everybody working together, getting out of their silos of like, we're completely plant-based. Sort of like, okay, great for you, but is this convincing? Is this impactful for the rest of the world? Work together. And mind you, the products currently on the market in the US and in Singapore, they're hybrid products. They're not 100% cultivated meat cells. No, they're not. Does it need to be? Not for me, uh, as long as it's giving me that sete uh, uh, feeling. And I'm, I'm, and 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 mind you, what I just got from uh, in Jose's kitchen in in Washington for for the opening there of the first dinner in the U.S. I was there, I was invited, and since 2017 and now 2023, 
cultivated meat has become so much better. I was amazed. This was big and beefy, even though it was chicken. It was chunky. Uh, I could really put my uh, teeth into it. It was very, very well charred and it had an amazing taste. And it was, I was really impressed. Those guys from Good Meat can make really good chicken. Yeah, especially if you give it to a Michelin star chef as well. <laughs> yeah, that helps. Yeah, that helps. Yeah, true. Yeah. I mean, what, what, what would be great is for someone like KFC, KFC to recognize the potential in this and for them to plow. Oh, well, KFC is lurking around the corner, don't worry. But uh, KFC, um, right now we can't scale. So I wouldn't want KFC to do it right now um, because we can't deliver yet. But I want KFC to work with us. So become a sponsor, become an investor, uh, guide us, make sure that we make the right kind of uh, chicken for KFC and be creative with us. Maybe KFC will have a new recipe because cultivated meat will also bring new foods to the world, new tastes. Fun um, combination. combination, definitely. Um, we're going to move on to some of your other hats now quickly. Um, firstly, respect farms. Yeah. So what's that all about? Um, it's about the best kept secret in the world about uh, in cultivated meat land, and that is that in 2008 outcome of the first research granted by the Dutch government was how cultivated meat can be made on farms by feeding uh, the cells uh, with algae. And because of the political change in our granting system in 2008, when that was the outcome and uh, farming com community and how to farm was not under debate yet, that was, okay, nice, put it on a shelf, and we never work on it. And luckily, of course, uh, uh, Serge Brin made us make the hamburger, so it launched cultivated meat on its own, but not the idea of farmers doing cultivated meat. <clears throat> so I remember having a, uh, I did a talk at Memphis Meat at the time, which is now ups uh, upside, having a great conversation with Nick and with Uma and asking Uma and Nick, okay, who is going to make your uh, meat? Um, how, what would it look like? And then I understood that they are very much into creating the process and the tech, but they expect other big companies to take over from them by their tech, by their technique, whether it's licensing or having them build uh, factories. I'm not all that familiar with their business models but it wasn't that they were thinking also of farmers and then i i vividly remember having some conversations uh, at the time in the states about okay and who's working with farmers and uh, is there any conversation there going on or will they be part of it and i found myself very much like the weirdo in the room like farmers doing cultivated meat? No way. Far cultivated meat will be only get to price parity when you have large factories and 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 uh, Tyson, GBS, or whatever will do this. And I was like, oh wait a minute, that is not the origin of the idea. There's a very famous picture of my father taking off his hat to a cow, and. Um, 
that was not a marketing picture. That was my father actually going to an angry farmer because in, I think it was 2002, there had been a, an article in an agriculture a magazine about cultivated meat. And my father was heavily attacked by two groups, the vegans and the vegetarians. And they were asked by the, the, the national radio, will you ever eat this? Oh, no way. We don't want this. And the idea alone, and well, we don't need meat. And then the other ones attacking my father was were farmers. How could we use, how could this guy think that what they make on their farm could ever be made in a lab? And then my father said, okay, Ira, drive me to the farmer and let me explain to the farmer that with the growing meat for extra space for animals, I want him to use a part of his barn to have bioreactors there so that he can have more room for his animals. And my father was convinced that farmers would want that as well. Uh, he was convinced that farmers are not people that like cramping up animals it, uh, in in two small spaces. Um, they're, they're, that, and also for me, that's not what I believe. They do it because we ask it. They do it because that's their business model. It's a business model we've created together with them. But I think if if we could rearrange farms so that they can make cultivated meat and then maybe still have animals, that's up to the farmer. That's not for me to decide. Um, and then if you look worldwide right now, who are making, who is making our, our meat? It's not a factory. It's farmers. It's animals. So why not this place on the farm where there's a community, where they're part of a vibrant rural community? I don't want the whole world to live in cities. So I hope in the future we will have huge factories all over the world creating huge amount of commodity products with cultivated meat technology. And I also hope that there will be a vibrant uh, rural area where people like you maybe decide to buy a farm or people that wouldn't go with their parents' animal husbandry but would like to stay on their parents' farm have cultivated meat uh, bioreactors in their barn and be a part of this new industry. And um, that is what I'm working on with a, a team of scientists. We're evaluating uh, what would be the perfect uh, business model for farmers in the Netherlands. And what I found out, of course, is that in the U.S., if I talk about farmers, the concept of what a farmer is is very different in the U.S. than it is in Europe. For instance, in the Netherlands, we have high-end, let's say high-end farmers, highly educated farmers. You have to, you have to, if you want to take over the farm of, from your parents, to get a loan to take that farm over, you have to have at least a university degree. So these are people that already work with cutting-edge techniques with high-end uh, 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 animal husbandry. So thinking that they would not be able to do a cultivated meat brewery in their barn, that's also ridiculous. Yeah. But it's so focused on price parity, big scale, huge scale, which if you look at the current state of the tech, most of the scientists that I talk to would love to sort of work with the barn scale and from barn scale to factory scale, in my view, 
will be the next thing. And let's first get it going in a barn and get it decentralized. That's the beauty of this system. If you have the recipe, if you know how to do this, you will have to do it every time in the same way. So you can do it here and you can do it in the north of Scotland and you can do it in Limburg and in Belgium and in Germany. And that's what Respect Farms is figuring out. We're uh, trying to work on uh, business models with farmers. We have a huge community of farmers, super enthusiastic about it. And with the help of the Ministry of Agriculture, I made a film because a lot of people sort of like, do you really think farmers can do cultivated meat? But what would that be like? And it cost me about two or three hours of explaining that. So I made a film and it will take you only eight minutes if you watch it. And then it is a vision film what it could look like if a farmer does cultivated meat on his farm. Maybe we can embed that into this article, Ira. I know that the um, Royal... Do, because uh, we have a Dutch film, we have a German film, we have a French film, we have a, uh, uh, an English film. And, I'm, I'm, and it's not saying this is how it's going to look, but it is. And, and I've done research with Wageningen University showing this film to farmers. And literally, when we started the research and invited them to talk about cultivated meat with us, they were like, why are we invited for this research? Cultivated meat, it's in factories. It's, it's not for us. And mind you, what does the normal person these days know about cultivated meat? You need a blue glove, a Petri dish, a white coat, a lot of money, and it's extremely, extremely futuristic and complicated. So why would a farmer ever think it's for him? Whereas if you have a different vision, like you're showing it as brewing beer or making cheese or making yogurt, which is has way more similarities to the production of cultivated meat than a petri dish, yeah. um, then they might have had a different view. So showing that in a film and taking them on a journey of thinking about it differently, a real paradigm shift made them really go from like, why am I here to, hey, Ira, um, what it is going to cost? How long is it going to last me? Where do I buy it? Yeah. Who's my off taker? Who's going to buy it? Who's going to guarantee me that I can sell this? And those are the valid questions of every farmer. Farmers are very creative in becoming, uh, making new business. They have B&Bs, they have uh, uh, an ice cream parlor in their backyard. They try to make money on the stretch that they have as their farm. I think that this can be part of it. Mm -hmm. I know the Royal Agricultural University in the UK, I think they're in the West yeah. Country, recently they announced that their own um, research into... Yeah investigating how the farming community can become part of a future cultivated industry. Yeah. And I know there's some interested um, partners already um, of being yeah. part of that supply chain. It makes sense. It's, it's my, you, you, my, buy cheese, you buy cheese from a certain region. It's got its own specific characteristics and tastes and texture. And yeah. why not for cultivated meat? As you say, it's the same thing. Um, now, Kind Earth Tech, lastly, we see the logo there in the background and we've for, for good measure, we've also got one in the top right-hand corner yeah, of the screen. <laughs> it's fine. Um, so what's uh, what's the goals and ambitions there 
Well, when, when Olivia and I started Kinder's Tech, um, it was a blue ocean. So nobody actually did events around cultivated meat or about uh, uh, alternative proteins. These days, um, there are so many events going on around alternative proteins. Um, so last year when I did another event in the Netherlands, again, I was very insecure. Is it still relevant for Kinder Stack to put out events? Um, and I found out it was because we do have the most impossible business model uh, in the world because you can't sort of sponsor to be on stage. Um, we ask you to talk about something that is relevant, uh, that is kind to the earth, that is kind to animals, that is an amazing new technique, and we put you on stage. Uh, the, the, the sort of the startups are the, the stars of the show and, and not the people that already made it. Um, I don't know whether you've ever met Olivia Fox Caban, but she is, uh, of course, the one that made the industry maps. So we have this huge network of companies on our maps and we interact with them quite regularly. And we find out, hey, there's something amazing going on there or there's something amazing going on there. And we put them on stage and we invite them and we can't pay the, the, the speakers, but uh, we can also not, but we don't ask them for sponsoring. You're, you first get invited and right. then you get invited to um, talk, to deliver a lot of content. So don't give me a pitch. We, no. of course we do some pitches, but it's not about the pitch. It, it's about the tech and your end vision and, and what you want to achieve. And, and, and that is what we put on stage. And somehow we get a very amazing public a mix of students, investors, companies, people that want to be in this space. Um, and uh, we put them on boats and we make them network and people find jobs there. People find new directions in life there. Uh, and I am super proud that the current team that is working at Respect Farms, high-end scientists that could have worked at Mozambique, Meetable uh, and other companies were willing to work at Respect Farms. Uh, so that's that's where we source them from. Um, and doing it in Singapore, oh, amazing. And also there, it showed that our maybe slightly artistic and, 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 and way of designing the event still has a place. And it's all about connecting and it's about putting people on stage that need to be heard in our view. And that's kind of stack. And um, we've now also worked together with the embassy. So we did uh, uh, in Singapore a sort of deep dive into the tech, into the possibilities, very open-minded people talking together with questions that they otherwise wouldn't ask because they're in this huge arena. And now it was a smaller group and we did this deep dive. Uh, yeah, that's kind of tech. And of course, on our website, you can find inspirational books and you can find some uh, uh, amazing footage from uh, a big event that we did earlier in the Rai. Yeah, check it out and, and find us and come help us. It's all volunteer work and it doesn't make sense and we still do it. 
I'd say what I like about this uh, this industry, I've worked in lots of different industries over the years, from sort of industrial vehicles to stadium architecture, winter ski resorts, you know, you name it, I've done them in the past. I love the spirit of collaboration um, in this sector. Um, but I'm going to leave you with a couple of tough questions. What do you love most about it? And what do you hate about it? So let's start with um, hate and we'll finish with love. Um, what I hate that it um, that if I go to dinner somewhere, what I eat is, is the topic of the conversation because okay. I come from a, a non-vegan um, world where uh, I am suddenly the weird vegan in the room and um, having to talk why I do what I do or having to listen to people explaining to me almost like an excuse why they still eat meat is what I hate about it because I don't care why people eat meat. That's their, I, I'm just there to talk about my vacation and, and, and to talk about my kid or normal social life. But since I've entered this arena, my dinner conversation has changed to listening to people excusing themselves for what they eat. Because I absolutely hate. So please, anyone, don't do it. I don't care. Do what you want to do and you'll get there in the end. And if cultivated meat is, for instance, good enough, you'll, you'll change to that, I'm sure. What I love is that I have had to change my mind about so many things. I've come across so many of my own preconceived ideas. Um, I love being in the room with my heroes, uh, absolutely uh, amazing people and, and being able to call them my friends. And um, the collaboration of the people that I have uh, around me, like a person like Emma Osborne, she just came up to us and she became my best friend and she, she helps out. So many people are willing to help. Uh, um, and also I'm, I'm, I'm now nearly 60 and I come from a, a, an era where as a woman, you had to behave in a certain way to make your way and be respected or to be followed or to be in a career at all um, between the guys. And in my early days, women weren't very loyal and supportive. But the, the women I work with today and the younger generation, they're teaching me how to be a better woman. They're teaching me how collaborative we women can be. And um, I love it. I absolutely adore that new way of working together. Yeah. And uh, is there going to be a third generation of the Van Elen family moving yeah. into this sector? Yeah, yeah. there is. But Brilliant. It, but it will take a while, like it took yeah. with me. And um, yeah, I think so. Brilliant. Well, look, Ira, thank you very much for, for joining us today. It's, we've, we've, we've had more than an hour. Um, but I'm sure everyone will get to the end of this video and this video will actually form the basis of the article that I write for the magazine. Um, it's been lovely talking with you. As I said before, we could have spoken to Upside, we could have spoken to Good Meat, um, yeah. but I thought it would be really important to go back to the source. Um, certainly your father is a protein pioneer. 
Um, yeah. And uh, it's great that you're following in his footsteps and your son eventually as well. So brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's absolutely now a family affair, but uh, the the family is an extended family. Nick, you're part of it, and uh, uh, and and yeah, that it's it's a it's an amazing big family trying to redirect a huge freighter into a better direction, and um, we now call it alternative protein, but hopefully we will call it additional protein in the two comms uh, in in the future. And I'm I'm very happy that you uh, wanted to have me uh, as a guest right now. Thank you, Ira. Thank you for listening to the Future of Protein Production Podcast. We hope you gained valuable insights and knowledge about the innovative technologies and practices that are transforming the way we produce protein. Don't forget to subscribe to Protein Production Technology International, our multimedia magazine, and follow us on social media to stay up to date with the latest news and updates. Stay tuned for more exciting episodes.